Take your trapping to the next level by implementing the lessons learned from Return to Field and your community cat programs. Join us on November 12th for a free webinar with Neighborhood Cats to learn more about these approaches and how they can be used to save lives and reduce the number of cats living on our streets. Learn more and register at communitycatspodcast.com. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Hey, everybody, Stacy here. This is part two of the audio of our free webinar, Colony Caretaking Tips and Tricks webinar that we presented with the folks at Neighborhood Cats. There's some incredible advice for folks that are taking care of kitties, especially at this cold time of the year. For those of us that are in the northern part of the United States, it can be pretty chilly for our kitties. And there's some great tips here in this program. This is the second part of a two-part series. So if you missed last week's podcast, you might want to go back and listen to that episode first. I do see one question in the chat that we can get to, which is um, if the cats don't all show up together at feeding time, how do you ensure each cat gets an equal amount of wet food if you don't mix the wet and the dry together? So that, that's a great question. And it sounds like what you've come up with by mixing the wet and the dry is working for you. So that's fine. You know, you have to take these kind of general principles and adapt them to the reality of what you're having to deal with. So if you find that mixing wet and dry food together is getting enough wet food to all the cats and they're eating it, it's nothing to own a waste, then, then that's great. I would just continue doing that. And actually, I think that's a, that's a good tip. If you want to uh, you know, write to us and let us know more about your experience with that, we could maybe get us a photo of a cat eating the dry food mixed with the wet and we can pass that tip on to other people because that's a great idea. All right, let's talk about winter shelter. And obviously really important for caretakers in cold climates, uh, the cats really need your help in the wintertime to really to stay healthy and to ensure that they stay healthy and are able to sleep in a warm, dry place during the day and at night. So any kind of winter shelter that a good winter shelter is going to have these three qualities. They're going to be waterproof, right? Keep out the elements. They're going to be well insulated. And the reason you need good insulation, like a thick styrofoam, that type of material, is because the cat's body is acting as a radiator. So they're giving off body heat, and then the winter shelter is trapping it inside and warming up the space. So if you have something like a a very expensive dog house, but it's made of a thinner plastic that isn't good insulation, their body heat is just going to pass right through and not stay in the shelter. You also want minimal uh, empty airspace for the same reason. So let's say you get a big dog house that is well insulated, but, you know, the cats are there on the ground huddled together and above them is two feet of empty space. Their bodies now have to heat up that empty space and that's going to waste. So you want a shelter where the cats are pretty tightly packed in and that's going to be your warmest if it's well insulated. So the shelter you're seeing in this particular slide is a large styrofoam fish box with a door cut, you can see there, with Kitty poking his head out. It's wrapped in um, thick plastic and then tied together with these industrial plastic ties that I think melt together. 
If you're in the New York City or Long Island area, you can actually buy these. If you go to this website, it'll tell you what's available and, and where you can pick them up. If you want to go with our favorite winter shelter, one of the do-it-yourselves, this is what it looks like mid-construction. You're basically, you're taking, it's an eight foot by two foot, two inch thick, hard foam insulation. Okay, I'll say that again. It's eight foot by two foot. It's two inches thick and it's a hard styrofoam. And these sheets, these eight foot by two foot sheets are used in like insulating attics and things like that. And you need a, a table saw, so you get a nice, clean, straight cut through the two inches. But you're taking that two foot by eight foot sheet, and you're cutting it into pieces, and you're using every square inch in this design, and you're gluing them all together with a silicone glue. And um, you've got this great shelter. And what you see here is kind of taking it up a notch where you can see there's a linoleum tile on the floor of the shelter. And what do you call that paper that you use? Contact paper on the insides. So you don't have to get that fancy, but if you want to, it's just a little added feature for the kitties. If you're interested in this design, go to our website. We have a feral cat winter shelter page that has the plans for this on there, detailed plans step-by-step. Step. Here's another one. It was put together by a group called the CSM Stray Foundation in Queens, New York. The plans for this, as well as other ideas, again, are on that same page I just referred to on our website. This is a storage bin. You can see a doorway cut in it. And then the inside of the storage bin is lined with, this is a one-inch styrofoam sheet. And you can see it doesn't have to be exact. It doesn't have to fit super tight because you've got that outer shell of the storage bin. But you're lining the walls, and then there's a piece you put on top before you put the lid on. And this will keep the cats nice and warm, too. Real simple way, if you've got one or two cats that you're trying to keep warm, is just to get a styrofoam shipping box. They're used for meat, fish, vaccines. You can order them in bulk online. And you just, again, you cut a doorway in one of the short sides. Make sure that you leave a few inches up off the ground so that the shelter doesn't flood in the snow or rain. Use the silicone glue to attach the top of the shelter. And then uh, use a deck paint to paint it and blend it in with the surroundings. This will actually be super warm for the cats. If you get a really nice tight fit when you put the top on, you might choose not to glue it on. It'll make it easier to keep the shelter clean if you can take the top off, if you want to clean it periodically. But if it's easier, just glue it on or it doesn't fit real tight. Again, for those of who would prefer to just take a screwdriver and put the thing together and not have to worry about making your own, you can order a really high-quality shelter from Feral Via. Uh, just go to that link. And now, also, just want to let you know about emergency winter shelter in case you're in a situation where maybe you haven't got all the parts you need yet or you're waiting for an order from Feral Via, but hey, there's a snowstorm coming and you need to get something out there quickly. That's where you would use this method. And this is basically using cardboard box. People are sometimes surprised, but cardboard is really a very good insulation. If you do this method, you, you can actually keep the cats quite warm. You put a smaller cardboard box inside of a larger cardboard box, so you're getting two layers of cardboard insulation. And then in any space between the two boxes, you stuff newspaper, which is also good insulation. Wrap the whole thing in plastic, like a plastic painter's drop cloth, and duct tape that plastic on. You know, Make sure you've cut a, an opening. Make sure it's raised off the ground so it doesn't get real wet. And you've got something that will last you at least several days and keep the cats quite warm. One question that often comes up when we're talking about winter shelters is, uh, should you have two doors? 
you know, because the idea is that you don't want a cat trapped in there if they're being harassed by a raccoon or chased by a dog or something like that. The idea is to give them a way to escape. In our experience, that situation is pretty rare that other animals are harassing the cats in their shelters. So the the advantage of having that extra door is not so great because they basically never need it. But the downside is pretty high because you're creating drafts, especially if you don't have flaps on the doors and you're going to be having a breeze and a draft go through from one door to the other. And that is usually more dangerous to the cats than the threat of any predators. Now, on the other hand, if you're in an area and there are coyotes or there really is a substantial threat of predators that might go after the cats who, when they're in the shelter, then yeah, then you want to have two doors. But as a general rule, if you're not dealing with that kind of situation, you don't. Now, you can put flaps on the doors of these shelters to also help with insulation, and you would definitely want to do that if you have more than one door. And what you could do if you're using styrofoam to attach a flap, you could get the plastic nuts and bolts that are used to attach uh, toilet seats onto the toilet. And you can just poke those right through the styrofoam or drill a little hole or whatever you need to do through the flap. Now, the flap needs to be something that's not too thick so that the cats don't have a lot of trouble just taking it and pushing it back. It's a good idea to get the cats used to using the shelter before you add a flap to it so that they know they want to get in there. If they're used to being in there, they're going to figure out how to open the flap pretty quickly. If they've never been in there, they might just kind of walk away. Another question that comes up is, well, how do you get them to start using it if they don't just naturally do it right away? Sprinkle some catnip inside, you know, put something really attractive in there, some treats, something like, not a lot, you don't want to attract insects, but just enough to get them curious and wanting to go inside and check it out. Placement of these shelters is real important too. What you don't want to do is what you see here in this shelter. So this is, um, these are the neighborhood cats winter shelters, but obviously they were never painted. So, you know, they kind of stick out like a sore thumb, you know, the bright pink. Whereas if you just put a coat of gray deck paint or brown or something like that, they'll blend right into the scenery and that's better. It's, it's safer for the cats. Try to be discreet and place them, especially, you know, because it's winter time. If you can keep the shelters close to the feeding station and the cats don't have to travel very far from one to the other, that's going to be uh, better for them, especially if there's a lot of snow on the ground or things like that. Another trick you can do, which you can see in this photo, you see how there's looks like two winter shelters side to side, and then there's two more right across from them. And there's that opening in the middle. And there's a piece of wood spanning that opening. So you can see how the snow is stacked up on top of that piece of wood and the ground in front of the shelters is dry. So using that piece of wood kind of creates a porch area. And in really bad weather, you can put food and water in that opening and the cats don't have to travel anywhere and they don't have to go through the snow or any elements in order to get to their food. So if you've got more than one shelter, having them face each other and putting a big piece of wood like plywood to cover the roofs, it's going to weigh the shelter down. It's going to create this kind of uh, space that the cats can be fed in if you need to. What do you put inside the shelters? If you can, adding insulating, insulating materials is, is great because it just makes everything warmer. If you can't check the shelters, and this, look, this happens, right? You are able to set the winter shelters up. You get them in a great place but you're not going to be able to regularly access that spot and check to make sure that everything inside the shelter is staying dry. If that's your situation, then don't 
use insulating materials because you need to be able to check that nothing got wet because if, if they get wet, then it can just make the cats uh, sick. So if you can't check regularly every couple of days or few days, something like that, then just don't use this stuff. But if you can, the best is straw. And people get confused between straw and hay. They think they're the same thing, but they're not. They're two completely different things. Straw is dry. Hay is moist. Hay is a feed for animals. Straw is not. And the problem with hay is because it's moist, it can get moldy. And if the cats are in there among moldy hay, they can get infections in their nasal passages and all sorts of bad stuff. So make sure you're using straw. And the thing that's great about straw is it lets the cats burrow into it. And that's the big principle when you're talking about putting things inside the winter shelters. That needs to be something the cats can have around them that they can burrow into. You don't want things that are flat and they lie on top of because those don't add warmth. They actually take it out of the cat. So um, if you can't use straw, then the thing we recommend next is shredded newspaper because, again, they can burrow into that. If you're an exception to that rule, which is don't use flat newspaper, don't use blankets or towels that are lying flat, is something called a purr pad. And that uh, retains the cat's body heat. So it becomes like a warm pad that they're lying on. So if you get that product, that's fine. You can put that in there and, and they will stay warm just by lying on top of it. With the holidays right around the corner, curl up with a furry friend and a copy of the new book, How Snowball Stole Christmas by Kristen McKenna. The adorably funny brand new novel featuring one very opinionated, very beautiful matchmaking cat named Snowball. The story is as cute as the cover. It's the perfect stocking stuffer. Clever scallywag of a cute as a button cat residing in a small town, Victorian B&B, and matchmaking on the down low, bringing two hearts together, all wrapped up like a pretty Christmas bow on a creamy white cat named Snowball. There's no end to the way Snowball can drum up trouble to bring two people together who start out despising each other. This floof will stop at nothing to make the perfect holiday match for her resident humans, even if it means being a little more naughty than nice. Just in time for the holidays, How Snowball Stole Christmas from Kensington Books is available everywhere books are sold. It's a great read. Team Dubert is at it again, and now they have an amazing companion case management module that once again revolutionizes how you rescue animals. Dubert partnered with Dallas Pets Alive and the Spay Neuter Network to build a powerful solution that allows you to manage cases of any kind. Whether owner surrender calls or emails, community cat tracking and reporting, Dubert is the only system that integrates two-way text messaging, automatic follow-ups, and even a rehoming solution that every organization can use. No more trying to manage 10 different technologies when everything is all in one place and tightly integrated. From fostering to transport, fundraising to e-commerce, supply and demand to case management, Dubert has everything you need to streamline your operations so you can focus on saving more animals. Check out the new companion case management module at www.dubert.com CCM and get signed up today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. 
For climates that are extra cold, you can line the walls and the ceiling of the interior walls and ceiling of the shelter with what's called a mylar blanket. And they cost like a dollar, two dollars each, and they reflect body heat back. So if they're on the wall, the cat's body heat is not only going to be trapped by the insulation, the mylar is going to shoot it back at the cat and kind of keep them extra warm. And you would use, you know, a good glue to attach them. They're very, they're very lightweight and easy to cut up. By the way, if you live in a cold climate, it's a really good idea to have one of these mylar blankets in your car at all times. Because if you ever get stuck and it's below freezing, you can take one of those mylar blankets and wrap it around yourself. And it will keep you warm until help uh, arrives. And that's what they're designed for. Okay, moving on from winter shelters, let's talk about neighbor relations and trying to um, you know, solve common complaints, even though your cats are fixed and they're well-behaved and they're well-fed. I'm sure many of you have experienced people have issues with them anyway. So let's talk about some of the ways we can deal with that. One of the most common complaints is people don't want the cats in their yards. And they may have any number of reasons. They may be allergic or they may be concerned about their children playing in an area that might have cat feces. They just might not like cats. The cats may be digging up their flower garden or their vegetable garden. So the point is that people can have legitimate reasons for, um, I mean, I'd rather have a cat in my yard than vegetables, but that's me. Somebody else can justifiably have the opposite opinion. So rather than arguing with people about cats' rights, it's better to work with them to keep the cat out of their area. And if you're talking about your typical backyard, it's not that hard to do. You know, if you're talking about an acre, that's harder. But if you're talking about your average suburban or urban backyard, you can use what's called deterrence. And there's two main types, that, and you see both of them here. One is hooked up to a sprinkler, and it uses water to deter the cats. And the other is an ultrasonic device that uses a, a very high pitched sound that we can't hear as humans, but the cats hear and it's very irritating to them. The way both of these devices work is you place them on the ground and then they send out an infrared field that covers a certain amount of territory. You know, make sure you have enough that the size of the yard matches the capacity of the device. And then when a cat steps into the infrared field, it sets the device off. So in the case of the sprinkler, the sprinkler will shoot out a burst, like a violent burst of water, and it doesn't get the cats wet, but it's, it scares them. And the ultrasonic device starts giving off that really irritating sound. And what happens is the cats become trained not to step into the infrared field, and they stay out of the yard. Take, sometimes it takes a little longer with the ultrasonic device, because most cats will just immediately leave, but occasionally there's one or two who try to tough it out, and it takes them several days or even a week before they just are like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Now, we prefer when it's possible to use the sprinkler. You, you can see it working. You know, you can see a cat step in the yard, the thing goes off, and the cat runs away. Very simple. The ultrasonic device, you, you can't hear it. You can't see it. So it's easier to make mistakes with it. There are a lot of common mistakes. Like A lot of people think like, oh, these devices don't work but that's because they put them up too high off the ground or they weren't pointed in the right direction or they got a device that was too small. So we put together a real short brochure with a lot of diagrams on how to use ultrasonic cat deterrent. And that's one of the handouts that you have today. So if you're thinking about using one, I would encourage you, make sure you download that handout. And let me mention while I'm at it, 
go ahead and download the Neighborhood Cats TNR handbook as well. That's kind of a good reference material where we go into a lot of the things we're talking about today into quite a bit more depth, with just the caveat that it was written in 2014. So some of the product information is going to probably be stale, but there's a lot of good information in there about the stuff we're talking about today. So really good devices. After a while, we found with the sprinkler is uh, you can take it apart after a while once the cats have been trained not to go in the yard. Here's a diagram of the ultrasonic and some of the things that can go wrong with it. So you need to have the correct range. So this device has a 25-foot range. It goes up to the edge of the fence. If the fence was 50 feet away, it's not going to do you much good. You need a bigger device. Another thing that comes up with these ultrasonic devices are people are afraid it's going to disturb their cats inside or their neighbor's cats or things like that. The radio waves that are given off by this device, the sound waves, I should say, do not penetrate solid objects. So if you have a fence, the sound waves are going to stop at the fence. If your pet cat's indoors, they're not going to hear this. You can also get devices that are not irritating to birds. So there's a whole variety on the market that you can look at. So they need to be set up not too high off the ground, only about, I think, maybe six inches at the most. They need to be pointed in the right place. You need to make sure the batteries are functioning. And like I say, they can take a little more time than the sprinkler before the cats decide out they don't want to hang around. Another way to help with common, I don't want cats around here problems is, uh, especially with gardens, are what we call physical barriers. So car covers, if people are complaining about paw prints or even scratches or something like that, then just get a cover that's easy to take on and off. There's an example of one uh, there, but there's you know hundreds of them on the market. You can use cat-proof fencing. I know somebody wrote with a question about they, they would like their cats not to roam as much. Well, you can probably, the only way to keep them from going off your property is to fence them in. You can do that with the cat-proof fencing. And perfect fence is one example. If you have an already existing like wooden fence, you can get perfect fence attachments for the top of the fence. And the cats can climb these uh, fences, but they can't climb over them. So they, they remain restricted in that area. You can also take these fencing and turn the tops of them to face the other direction. And somebody can use them to keep cats out instead of keeping cats in. Now they do tend, you know, tends to be your more expensive solution, but it's there if you really need it. Cat scat mats are that kind of spiky looking plastic thing you see. You can get, I think it's 11, 12 foot rolls of them at a pretty good price. And what you do is you put that in the ground in the garden area and it, it doesn't hurt the cats, but obviously it makes digging something that's unpleasant since it pokes their paws and they'll stop using that garden as their litter box. Same idea is if you put lattice down on the ground where somebody's going to be planting and you put the seeds in between the openings of the lattice, again, you're preventing the cats from digging and discouraging them from eliminating there. And then finally, river rocks, same thing. They can be scattered throughout a garden area and the cats will not go there because they can't dig through the rocks. Here's an example of somebody who didn't want the cats on their car cover. So what we did is we got a couple of those long rolls of the cat's cat mats and we just used bungee cords to attach them to the top of the car. And this uh, prevented the cats from hanging out and ripping up the car cover and, you know, generally um, hanging out there. So again, it doesn't hurt them, but, you know, if they jump up once, they're not going to jump up on that again. 
So that's obviously if the car is being stored for a long time, you probably wouldn't want to go out every morning and rolling up your cat scat mats and then rolling them back. But if a car is being stored somewhere for any length of time, then this might be a good way to keep the cats off. Another alternative is to give the cats a place to go that they'll find more attractive than the garden or wherever it is that they're going. And you can do something like you see here, like a plastic kitty sandbox. Cats are gonna love this. Again, you just you know, you just need to keep an eye on it and replace the sand every now and then. Kitty box sand is usually pretty inexpensive and you could just gauge how long it takes before it starts to, you know, kind of get too full and smelly and then just dump it, replace it with new sand. Another alternative is to get a big bag of peat moss and stick that in a corner of the yard or nearby. The cats like to eliminate in peat moss too. It's it's a soft material that's very easy to dig. And then again, once in a while, just throw away all the peat moss and replenish it with a fresh batch. You can also use a storage bin like we showed with the feeding stations and the winter shelters and cut a hole in it and put a litter box inside, which would be pretty easy to clean. So again, the idea is you're you're creating an alternative, more attractive place for the cats to go so that they stay away from the problem area. Okay, so let's get into our last topic for today before we um, finish up and take questions, and that's uh, what we call health hacks. Obviously, if we're talking about severe injury or serious illness, you're going to need to get the cats to a veterinarian. But for just kind of general maintaining of the cats and the colony's health, you can do that in a way that's not too costly and and not too difficult by using some of the tips that we're going to go over now. So vitamin C is a great immune booster that we can take advantage of. Now, cats will naturally generate a certain amount of vitamin C themselves, but that source, that supply of vitamin C gets used up very quickly during times of stress. So during the trapping, or if they have to go to the vet, or if they're dealing with severe weather, they can start to use up their own internal vitamin C pretty quickly. So if you supplement it, you can help them get through those stressful periods without getting sick. You can use a powdered supplement. You can um, also use organic tomato sauce that does not have onion as an ingredient because the onion can be dangerous. And a lot of people don't know, but tomato sauce is a very rich source of vitamin C and the cats uh, really tend to like it. You can give up to uh, 250 milligrams, about a teaspoonful per cat with each meal. They will excrete whatever excess vitamin C they take in. You can't overdose on vitamin C unless you know you, you really go over the top. And um, so really just something as simple as putting a little tomato sauce on top of their food, especially for the cats that like it, is going to get them some of that extra vitamin C. So good idea, like wintertime, before you're about to trap, things like that. This is another supplement that can be really helpful, especially for male cats. It's called D-Monos, again, over-the-counter, and it's a powdered cranberry extract. It helps get rid of harmful bacteria in the urinary tract and prevent urinary tract infections. Since male cats have very narrow urinary tracts, you really don't want crystals forming and blocks happening because that can become very serious. So if you want to just, again, during a period of stress or if a cat you think is showing signs of a UTI, give them this dosage, about an eighth of a teaspoon twice a day per cat. And you can just give it to the colony in general anyway, in order to maintain their health, but especially during times that might be stressful. If you have cats who you know are prone to lower urinary tract disease, really good idea to to keep them on this. It's like 
you know, how people, um, if they get a urinary tract infection, you know, drink a lot of cranberry juice. It's exactly the same ingredient. Probiotics are another great way to maintain health and keep their intestines and bacteria that's in their gut uh, healthy and lots of it there. There's plenty of products out there. They're also really good if a cat is on antibiotics because the antibiotics will kill a lot of the good bacteria in the intestines and then the probiotics will replenish it. You can add it to the food or water. And again, it's about a quarter teaspoon per cat daily. And Jackson Galaxy makes cat probiotics and there are a number of other brands that are out there. His are, I think, are one you can trust. He makes good stuff. Okay, fleas becomes, it's a big issue often for colony caretakers. And we're back to our product diet, Tamisha's Earth. Again, emphasizing that you're talking about food grade, not pool grade. As I explained before, diet Tamisha's Earth isn't actually Earth. It's these miniature fossilized marine creatures. And you're basically, it's their shells and they're very sharp on a microscopic level. So they will kill fleas on contact and you can sprinkle it into any cracks or crevices, places where fleas are prone to hang out. Again, make sure you're wearing a dust mask. You don't want to be inhaling this stuff. You're perfectly safe if you just have an ordinary dust mask on. But some people uh, use it to, you know, carefully wipe a cat with it. It's kind of a poor man's version of flea medicine because it kills on contact. And if the cat licks it off their fur, it's fine. If it's food grade, it's not going to hurt them at all. We've used them, seen or seen them used in like mobile home parks, things like that, like underneath the mobile home and inside, again, along where the floor meets the wall, things like that. Or if you're outdoors and there's, you know, some type of opening and a brick wall, anywhere the fleas may be hanging out, you sprinkle, sprinkle this over it. That'll take care of it. Another product is what's called beneficial nematodes. These are like tiny little worms that you spread on uh, the lawn in warmer weather and make sure you don't spray them onto the lawn in the sun. You want to do it in the shade or the sun will kill them right away. So you have an attachment to your hose, you put the beneficial nematodes in, and then you literally spray them onto the lawn in the shade. As they grow and spread throughout the lawn, they eat all the flea larvae in the area. They just devour the fleas. If that's your situation, you're talking about a grassy area where you have a little bit of shade where you can start them off, it's a great natural way to control fleas. Now, if you're talking about um, over-the-counter products, ones that are ingestible, because, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of community cats, a lot of them, you're not going to be able to put like Advantage or Frontline or something and squeeze that in between their shoulder blades because you can't get close enough to them. So this medicine will kill all the fleas on the cat within 30 minutes, and you can get it over the counter with no prescription. It doesn't kill larvae. It doesn't provide long-term protection. It just kills all the adult fleas that are on the cat at that time. So it's a good kind of maintenance medication if you give it to them once in a while, and you can put it in their food. just have to be careful that each cat gets the right dosage. Safe for kittens over two pounds. And its active ingredient, as you can see written there, is called Nighton Pyrum. This Capstar is kind of the original brand in this, in this space, but you can find generic versions with the exact same ingredient, the exact same amount, that are usually quite a bit cheaper. They tend to have, you know, kind of rip-off names like Cap Action and stuff like that, but that's fine. If they're made of Nighton Pyrum and there's 11.4 milligrams per pill, it's the exact same thing as a Capstar. Worms are another common issue with colony cats. Now, understand with fleas and worms that a healthy community cat is going to have a certain 
level of fleas, it's going to have a certain number of worms in their system. And that's fine. That's true for any animal that's living outdoors. They're going to have a certain parasite load. And that itself is not a problem that becomes a problem if it becomes too much and there's too many worms and there's too many fleas. That can be indicative of some underlying health issue. So if you've got a community cat who's excreting large amounts of worms, but the other colony cats are looking fine, probably something you need to go to a vet, bring the cat to a vet and find out why does this cat have some type of immune problem and does not have a healthy balance of worms? Or why is this cat infested with fleas and the others are not? Or things like that. It's usually a sign of some underlying health issue. But nonetheless, you may want to get rid of the worms every now and then, just kind of clean out their system. So you can get these medications over the counter. Drontal, you can get at petmeds.com. And it's expensive. It's like $6 a pill, but it's it's a broad spectrum. It kills like all different kinds of worms. So if you think it's an issue, it's worth administering every now and then. This other tapeworm dewormer is exactly that. It's for tapeworms. And then if you want to go the more holistic route, you can, I haven't tried this, but it looks like an interesting product that is a broad spectrum. It impacts a lot of different kinds of worms and it's uh, homeopathic in its uh, nature. So you can get that at Chewy.com. Okay, well, you know, revaccination is really a matter of, um, realistically, not very many people do it because it's, it's pretty difficult. And I think a lot of it has to do with, well, let me say for the rabies vaccine, which is the one most people are concerned about, we know they're good for three years, but we don't know how long they're good for because they stopped the trials after three years. So there's that. So really the main motivation for retrapping them is going to be a legal one that you had. There's an ordinance that requires it, that you have public health people or animal control people who are insisting upon it. So that's most likely realistically when you're going to um, make that effort to revaccinate them. Or you may very strongly believe yourself that they should be revaccinated, which is perfectly fine. The key to retrapping cats who are already fixed is number one, that they're on a feeding pattern. So it's predictable where they're going to be and when they're going to be there. And then the number one thing you're going to try is to use a way to capture them that you didn't use the first time. So if you caught them with an ordinary box trap, you know, the long, narrow traps, uh, then the next time you trap, you're going to use a drop trap, right? And vice versa. And we go over that in the TNR certification workshop. There's a free webinar that's been recorded on the Community Cats podcast page on drop traps. So there's information, plenty of information out there about how to use these things. Also, it depends how much time has passed. A lot of cats do forget if it's years later that they were trapped. So it takes a little more effort. But if you do those two things, have them on a feeding pattern, use a way of trapping them that you didn't use the first time, you should be okay. And there was a second part to that question, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, uh, trapping a sick cat. Tricky because it depends what they're sick with. So if they're injured, like they have a gash on their leg, if it's more of an injury type of situation or they are you noticing a growth on the, the back of their neck or something like that, you want to have it checked out. Hunger is going to be the same thing. You're going to deprive them of food. You're going to get them hungry and should be able to trap them in that manner. If you're trying to just pick one out from a, the rest of the colony, then you want to learn how to use a drop trap because you decide when to pull the string and which cat to catch. Now, the tricky part is when they have severe upper respiratory infections and they can't smell, right? You know, cats that can't smell won't eat. But have you ever seen sick cats where they come over to the food and then they just kind of look at it and they don't eat it? 
because they don't quite recognize it, but they can still, if you get something that's super, super smelly, like mackerel or some type of a human grade tuna, and what you're trying to do is get that scent through to them. Also, at some point, even though they can't smell, they may become hungry enough, may take out two or three days to go in, but you need to try to get the scent through their stuffness. It's tough with the with the cats that are severely congested, but keep trying. You can try with toys. You can try with laser pointers, try to ch- chase the cat under a drop trap, things like that. Study where they hang out, put a drop trap there, and maybe they'll hang out under it and you'll be able to trap them that way. With the congested cats, it, do, it does take quite a bit of more effort to get them. There's a comment in here with uh, sort of the telemedicine theme. When we cannot trap a sick cat, we take a video for our vets, and that seems to appease the new laws that they have actually seen the cat in person. That's a great idea. If you if you have a veterinarian willing to work with you that way, and you can show them the congestion, they may be able to prescribe something. Of course, then you got to get medicine into the cat. <laughs> right. So that's going on to the yeah. next the next theme, which was another person said, you know, how do you ensure you're getting meds in the food evenly? the cats. And then another person just suggested using some L-lysine for preventing URIs. Yeah, lysine lysine is um, an amino acid that has some antiviral properties. It's not a strong antiviral, but it will uh, help. You know, it's a marginal marginal help. So it is best used as a preventative, I I agree, as opposed to a cure. How do you ensure the cats are getting, you know, you have to dole up the food into portions and then do the best you can to make sure each cat's getting the right amount. Most of these medications have fairly high toxicity levels, meaning that it would take a lot to overdose on them. So you don't have to worry too much about overdosing, although you want to make sure that's true about what the toxicity level is. You know, for cats who aren't getting enough of the medication, that that's tougher. And, you know, if it's really super important, you could try trapping the cats and then isolating them so that they only get their share of food. But of course, that's that's a huge effort too. So no no easy way to do that, I'm afraid. We have a couple questions on the spay-neuter. So, you know, how does one find a veterinarian that will spay-neuter feral cats at no or low cost? And if such a vet doesn't exist in your area, how do you introduce yourself to a vet and try and get connected with one? So the first place, I think the best resource these days is the United Spay Alliance's website. They have a very extensive database they spent a lot of time building on low-cost spay-neuter. So wherever you are in in the country, in the United States, go to United Spay Alliance's website and check out their database. You can also go to, I believe, Spay USA has a voucher system with um, low-cost spay-neuter and also Friends of Animals is another national spay-neuter, uh, low-cost spay-neuter network. So those are the, the first places to go. If you if there's nothing in your area, first thing I would do is find a rescue group in your area, call them up, ask them who they're using. If you might be able to uh, work with that veterinarian or call your local shelter, ask them if they have a list of veterinarians who provide low-cost services. And then if worse comes to worse, if you have animals of your own, talk to your veterinarian and, and see if they will give you a discount. Um, often veterinarians will treat their own clients more preferentially. When it comes to um, cold calling a veterinarian that you don't have any relationship with, that's just a lot of knocking at door, on doors and, and talking. A lot of them will say no, but you just need one who will say yes. When I started out with Neighborhood Cats, we used to approach veterinarians who had just opened their clinics. 
they wanted any business they could get. <laughs> and then there are also veterinarians who, who want um, the experience, who want to gain experience with spay-neuter, who will be open to it. So, you know, try all those different routes. What age do you recommend that kittens get spayed or neutered? Well, if they're feral or if they're going to be going back outside, then you want to fix them when you catch them, <laughs> right? You don't want to catch a feral kitten and then say, oh, you're, you're too young. I'll be back in a month or two because you may not get that opportunity again. And if you're dealing with experienced high volume spay neuter specialist surgeons, their cutoff is usually two months, two pounds. I've seen them do as young as six weeks, but those are the surgeons who are very experienced. Now, what these surgeons will tell you is if you can wait until they're three months old and three pounds, they're usually a little more comfortable doing the surgeries. So if you can wait, then give it till three months. But if, you've, if you're doing a big trapping and kittens are among the cats that you've caught, just get them fixed as long as the veterinarian is comfortable doing it. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Wow.